0: Our part of the industry is really the short trips. So we're very focused on connections. How do we connect two riders so they're riding together? How do we connect people with the train station? How do we connect people with the bus stop? Ultimately, our goal is to get people out of their cars. And there's no better way to do that than a train or a bus.
1: Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. News and Views this week with Alex Esposito, who is the co-founder and CEO of the great microtransit company, Circuit. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. Thanks for having me here, Paul. We're sitting out on the port of Miami, of all places, uh, in the VIP suite of the CoMotion Conference. So you'll hear a little background noise, but thank you so much for taking some time today, Alex, to share with me about one of the hottest trends in the industry, which is microtransit. You were just on a panel just now with a a packed audience that I was in, talking about microtransit. Tell me about your company and how it fits into the microtransit
0: ecosystem. Yeah, well, um, first, you know, thank you very much for having me on here. I have to say this is probably one of the nicest interview spots I've I've ever ever been in. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm the the co-founder and CEO at Circuit, and Circuit is a on-demand shared electric shuttle service. And we are very focused on short distance transportation. Microtransit more holistically is is on-demand transit that's helping to serve uh, needs of of underserved areas of areas that are uh, without transit access or areas that historically have had underperforming transit services. Um but we're a bit more granular than that in in that we're very focused on short trips. About a third of all vehicle trips in the U.S. are two miles or less, and about half of them are three miles or less. Really? And so we think, Un- unlike public mobility, uh, no, just in general, vehicle trips. Okay. Um, and so, so much of traffic, especially in cities, is caused by all of these short trips adding up. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. And <laughs> yeah, and
0: so that's that's really the part of the market that we're focused on. And. We, we like to to offer the users that on-demand experience that they've, they've grown to like about the rideshare services. Um, but we deploy things a bit, a bit differently where uh, we only operate within geo-fenced coverage areas. Uh, those are normally designed through our partnerships with agencies and cities. Uh, the vehicles are 100% electric. They're on-demand, um, but they're pooled. So a local employee driver, which is another big difference, will come and pick you up in an electric vehicle. Uh, we'll pick other people up that are heading in the same direction, and then, oftentimes that rides free. Just tell me that I want to catch that. So you
1: are contracted by like a city agency or somebody to do. Like I was in Palm Beach recently, yep. uh, where Valerie Nielsen has the you know the transportation planning agency, and I rode your vehicle. It was on it was on one of our episodes of our TV show. Oh, great! So it's running in the downtown area of West Palm Beach, I guess. That's right. Who's yeah. paying for that?
0: So that's funded through um, actually a, a partnership between the. Uh, downtown development authority in west palm beach um bright line train systems is involved and yeah. we recently um received uh, additional funding from the town of palm beach uh and now also you know working uh closely with the city of west palm beach and so that's a great example of, of multiple organizations coming together for the yeah. common good of the area how does uh, that happen
1: how do you get four or five agencies who are willing to contribute to start something well
0: i i have to um you know the the DDA in West Palm Beach is very progressive. Rafael uh, Clemente oh, I is met there. Him. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's a great guy. He's incredible. Um, he's also uh, Tanika is is in there. Tanika James is in that office as well. Uh, and then Jonathan Hopkins um, is a mobility expert in the area that is is working to build WPB Go, which is is almost a mobility um, coalition, if you will, a nonprofit. Um, but so that's a little bit more of the complicated <laughs> yeah, example. But That's very
1: interesting. So how many places around the country are you doing this?
0: So we're in about 30 cities around the country. Um, um, and how, how old is your company? When did you start? So interesting origin story, actually. Because you're the co-founder. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my background's actually in consulting, and we—I uh, grew up uh, on Long Island, eastern Long Island, uh, in a beach town, and there was always a problem with parking at the beaches. And yeah, so my, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, my, my co-founder uh, James and I, James Mira's, uh, we were working full-time jobs, and, and we sort of had this idea of a pet project where what if we got people to park in town and ride a bus to the beach? Uh, it would reduce parking at the beaches, and 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 there was an underutilized parking lot in town. And then we started to look at that, and, and we looked at, what do you charge somebody to go a mile? Uh, what's the cost of fuel, the cost of insurance, the cost of these buses? What happens if it rains all summer? And, and so we kind of put the idea on the back burner, and then we brought it back to life, and we said, well, what if we made it free? And what if we use electric cars to reduce the cost of fuel and we work with advertising partners? And so that was really, you know, circuit uh, 0.1. Um, uh-huh. It was called the free ride at the time. Uh, more recently, we have implemented low-cost dollar, $2 fares in some of our markets situationally. But, but you know, in, in hindsight, we were using electric vehicles to solve a last-mile problem um, before we really knew the buzzword that has yeah, become yeah. the, the, the last-mile cool, right? problem. We were yeah, electric exactly. before electric was cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, dude. So, um, do you have competitors? I mean, are you the only ones in this market that does this kind of work? I mean, there there are competitors in transportation. You know, you know, I, I don't like to think that we compete with the Lyfts and the Ubers of the world, right? Um, no, you, you know, yeah, they're model- you have more than one person in the vehicle, right? We do, yeah. yeah. So we're shared mobility, very focused on short trips. Um, there's other operators. There's some here in Miami, and, and there's others, you know, around the country that have done uh, use electric vehicles, you know, for about town trips or yeah. you know, getting people to and from bars and restaurants and things like that. But uh, I, I think it's sort of unique in in that we work very closely with cities. Um, we offer tech enabled services, but I think most importantly, we're a turnkey operator. And so that's something that our city partners have really appreciated, where we provide the vehicles, the insurance, the maintenance, the technology, the rider app, the driver app, w two local drivers. We have about an eighty eight retention rate, eighty eight percent retention rate with our drivers across the country. And it's a fun job. It is, yeah. you know, and and we have really talked to one of your drivers. Yeah, <laughs> we have a really great crew of of drivers, and frankly, they're the face of the business. Yeah. So. Um, it's common, unlike you know, the rideshare service, you hop into a circuit and you're a regular rider, there's a good chance you're gonna know that driver. Yeah. And you know, I've seen drivers show up early to shifts knowing that one of the regular riders had a work interview and they wanted to be there to help that rider get to the inter- job interview on time. Yeah. Um, and so they really do start to become a, a key part of the community. And I think that leads to, to more effective services. All right, now let's take it up 26,000 feet. Let's talk about the industry and microtransit and where
1: we're going. So you are on this panel with a bunch of other microtransit leaders, uh, buddies of mine from Dallas and other places. Tell us about what you see happening. First off, let's get a definition on the table. Nobody can really even even today in May of 2023. You ask five different people here what's microtransit, you're going to get five different answers. Yeah.
0: What's your thoughts? So I think that. <laughs> where do I begin? Yeah. I, I think, you know, very simply, you know, micro transit is things that are smaller than mass transit, right? You and, know. Yeah. Uh, you know, that can be a number of things. It could be bike scooters. It, it could or smaller be smaller vehicles, smaller right? vehicles, um, you know, typically on demand and technology right. is a part of that. But I think it's the new shiny object in the transit room. And and because of that, there's going to be a lot of wins and losses. I, I think there's been situations where micro transit has been um, very successful and other times where the wrong Type of microtransit solution has been deployed to solve uh, certain problems. So I think at a really high level, and I'm I'm going on here, but there's situations where you have areas that have no transit and you need to alleviate a transit desert. Yes. And and that's where, and they're large areas, right? Yes. And it's going to be easier to deploy microtransit than to build a new bus route or to build a new train route. Of other areas that are really big and you have a few riders using a bus, and so your cost per rider is really high, and then microtransit might make sense. Our part of the industry is really the short trips. So we're very focused on connections. How do we connect two riders so they're riding together? How do we connect people with the train station? How do we connect people with the bus stop? Ultimately, our goal is to get people out of their cars, and there's no better way to do that than a train or a bus, but we want to make sure that those are full, because they're only, efficient if they're full and people are using them. Otherwise, you're driving around a lot of empty seats. And so, so we focus very closely on the first last mile side of that. Yeah. But that can also be first last mile to parking lots, right? Distant parking lots that people don't use because everyone's, you know, trying to jam into the most central lot. Right. Um, and Like so I, on a campus? Like, like a college campus or a corporate campus? Would that make sense? It could make sense on a, on a yeah, college campus event settings. Oh, um, yeah, right, right. But also- Like a Ravens even, game, even in parking lots way far out. It, exactly. But yeah. even in downtown areas, you know, most cities have a few lots in the middle of downtown that are super busy, and then they have a few other lots that are a little outside of walking distance that nobody uses. And so right there, there's an opportunity to get people to park once, use an underutilized lot, and then use shared mobility. and huh. you know, last Just like, month, like so you
1: started yeah. in Circuit 1.0. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> it's not so dissimilar. That's interesting. So, first and last mile solutions—that's key, you think—and huh? then also the deserts. I, I think I think you're naive. Anybody is naive to think that there's going to be a silver bullet in transportation. I, I think. We think that the last mile is a key part, and we think that short trips are a big problem. So, so that's where we really focus all of our efforts. There's a lot of bus companies out there. There's a lot of ride share companies out there. Um, and so we don't try to be okay at a lot of things. We want to be really great at making short-range transportation easier, greener, cheaper, and more accessible. Tell me if you agree with this concept. So I wrote a whole book about this. It's called The uh, Conversations on Equity
1: and Inclusion in Public Transportation which I invited 20 of the nation's leading transit executives to talk about what they're doing right now to improve equity inclusion in their communities. I only wrote one chapter. The chapter was on microtransit because I'm passionate about it, which is why you're on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, um, I really see it as a tool, an efficient tool to make sure no one is left behind. Just what you said, right? Using the Tom Lambert model in Houston of rebooting bus networks so that you don't run 40-foot buses down streets where you don't have enough uh, people to make it justified. So then when you move that route to somewhere else, people use it. Yeah, but the people are left behind. They're disenfranchised. I see, right? yeah. So you've got to have a layer of microtransit so that Aunt Susan can still visit her daughter in the hospital because she's not disabled. She doesn't qualify for ADA, but there's not a fixed route there. and She can't walk three blocks or four blocks over to the— You get what
0: I'm saying? I do, Is yeah. It, do you agree with that? So not only do I agree, it's, it's a topic I'm, I'm passionate about. Um we have a program in West Dallas um, that we work with dart um, that that's very much focused on an underserved uh, community. Um, we're also working on a program that'll that'll start soon in New York with NYSERDA. Um, that that's focused on disadvantaged communities that, that NYSERDA had identified and, and one of the reasons I'm passionate about it is there's so you almost have a perfect storm of perfect storm of problems that can be solved with few solutions. Um, so what I mean by that is Oftentimes in lower income or or disadvantaged, um, disenfranchised communities, um, you have lower car ownership, you have limited access to transportation, you have situations where commuting costs make up a high percentage of residents' incomes. You also oftentimes have poor air quality due to... um, housing being built near highways or near uh, commercial and industrial areas. And you have uh, an audience that often depends on mass transit for for work. You also need to create jobs and you also have a lower adoption of EVs. So all of these things are going on in these communities where if you're able to use shared electric vehicles to help get people to existing transit hubs in a cost-effective way, you're gonna make a much bigger impact in those communities and that impact is gonna resonate you know, throughout the, the entirety of the cities. That's great. All right, now in our remaining couple of minutes,
1: let's talk about what the future looks like. You know, autonomous, vertical takeoff and landing. That's what they're talking about here, yeah. right? At this conference, yeah. Give us your view of where you think we're headed in five to 10 years when it comes to you know, stuff other than downtown, fixed
0: route, public transportation and trains. I mean, you're, you're living this every day. Where do you think we're headed? So I think eventually, and there there was an interesting, I think it was the New York Times article about why is mass transit so highly used by New Yorkers? And the argument was that because driving is really horrible. (laughs) Not because it's the greatest mass transit system, which it is pretty good. But um, I think we're seeing a point where, you know, urban flock is happening. You know, obviously the pandemic had, you know, had an impact on that. But we're in Miami, you know, which is growing so rapidly. Wherever cities are growing, traffic and parking are getting worse. And so while that's a problem, that's also a, a great Incentive for us to take action on yes. this, and, and exactly, and so I think there's going to be um, a future where where people don't drive around cities, where people drive to and from cities, or take trains to and from cities, and then they use sh- different forms of shared mobility to move around cities. Okay. Um, now, eventually, those may be autonomous. Um, you know, personally, I'm. With, as it relates to autonomous vehicles, um, we're very interested. We're ready for them when they're ready, I yeah. put it that way. Right. Uh, but I think you're, you're going to have three sort of hurdles to, to get over. One is the technology, and that's the one that everyone talks about. When are they going to be ready? Right. I'd argue that that might be one of the, the, the quicker ones. Okay. Then you have regulation, right? And then when are cities going to allow them? What are states going to do about it? And you can go on there. But then you have the cost. And I think if you're not that attuned to the transportation space, you say, well, it's not a you don't have to pay for a driver; it's cheaper. But the when and where and why and how should we deploy these technologies? I think it's going to take a longer time to figure out, in the sense of when is it cost effective to do so. So you know, you and I hopping into a robo taxi to go to a Dolphins game might be a fun way to spend eighty dollars, right? But using auton or an autonomous vehicle that goes up and down a straight line um, you know, might might be cheaper than you know paying for, for you know a driver or something to do so. I guess what I'm getting at though is is like any new technology, we need to start of figuring out more granularly where these use cases make sense yeah. and where they make sense from a cost perspective. Because just because you don't have to pay for a driver doesn't mean that using a $750,000 robot that uh, needs an engineer to maintain its sensors is gonna be a more cost-effective way to move people around congested areas. That's
1: interesting. So it goes right back to, and I, I verified this quote with my with Peter Rogoff, uh, former FTA administrator, head of Sound Transit. His famous quote that I love is, if you've seen one transit system, or in this case, one city, you've seen one transit system. Mm-hmm. So in every city, there's a different, and so, from you know, transit agencies that are run by counties like they are here in Miami, yeah. to authorities, to New York City, to everyone has a different solution. And what you're suggesting, I think, Alex, is that microtransit fits into all these places in different ways. Exactly. And we just have to analyze that, figure out the right solution. And maybe that's why so many of these startups. Go bankrupt because they haven't figured that out right yet. And we're still in the figuring out phase.
0: I, I think that's true. And I, I think, you know, product market fit is, is something that, you know, every startup, you know, hears is, and how important that is. I, I think, though, this is just a natural progression of any new technology. I mean, if we look back at like the late 90s, everyone thought dot com was cool. Right, It didn't matter what the website was. It didn't matter what it was used for, but .com was cool, uh, and that was important, and .com was going to change the world. Now we look back at that, and we said .com was going to change the world. We didn't even know what we were talking about. <laughs> you know, there's incredible websites and companies like Amazon that have done really well, but then there's other times there's where— thousands that went under. Then there's thousands yeah. that went under, and and so I think we're kind of in, you know, a similar stage as it relates okay. to microtransit, and it relates to autonomous vehicles, where— Microtransit's cool. Dot com uh, um, autonomous vehicles are cool. It was almost like dot com is cool, and now we're sort of in this phase. But okay, when, where, why, how, and how much you know will should we be deploying these types of of solutions? I guess we will wait and find out the answer, huh? We're, we're getting we're getting smarter every day, and I think the CoMotion conference is a great way to bring um, a, a lot of smart people together to discuss these topics.
1: That's great. Alex Esposito, co-founder and CEO of the great company, Circuit. Thank you for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged.
0: Thanks again for
2: having me, Paul. Hi, I'm Alaya Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Summers here and transit agencies have a full docket of public events to table at, as the phrase goes. Farmers markets, music festivals, street fairs, parades, state and county fairs, and rodeos. The kinds with horses not buses how do you pick the events where your presence will have the most impact first when in doubt ask yourself the question you're already asking yourself all the time anyway what's best for riders where does the riding public need to see your agency represented to get information on your services and learn about your brand the answer to that question lies in your understanding of who your riders are and what matters to them for example in some communities that loyal rider base is quite broad So your riders might show up at the community events everyone turns out for, like events based on major holidays. But in other communities, the rider base is more niche. Ask yourself if you need to table at smaller, local, cultural events to reach your base. Then, think about the age demographics of your riders. Maybe you have riders from 8 months old to 108 years, but most transit organizations lean towards serving more riders of a certain age than others. The tweaks in your strategy could be subtle. If you serve a lot of young adults, you might want to focus on music festivals. But if your demographic tends to be older adults, Sunday afternoon concerts in the park might be more their speed. Finally, while you definitely want to show up where riders are, if you have budget and staff power, think about the riders you don't know yet. Where are they and how can you table to attract them? Just one example, if you're trying to bring back former commuters who now work from home, Are there neighborhood lunchtime events where you could market your services? If you'd like to talk more about best practices for events or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name, C-A-R-E-Y.
1: And now we move into the leadership development portion of our podcast. Every other week, we bring you an expert on leadership Talking about how you can improve your own personal leadership today. I'm excited to have with us from the Netherlands, Marinma Derada, who is founder of Mindset Results. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today.
3: It's my pleasure.
1: So, Marinma, tell me a little about yourself and what you do.
3: Okay, well, I consider myself now a sustainability coach, and because um, yes, I have a technical background, I study engineering, chemical engineering, went way, way by wing. when. But over the years, I became a coach. And I started helping companies to find their purpose and their passions. And then uh, what it was growing up in me was the sustainability emergency, the climate emergency. And I remember in 2020, I went to a meeting in Amsterdam that put it so clear. The tipping points will be such that we will not be able to recover after then. So I decided to merge everything that I was doing with sustainability. And that's what I'm doing now.
1: So let's talk about our the leadership portion of what you've been doing, which is basically discovering your leadership passions, which I'm a strong believer in. Um, you know, I get a lot of comments a lot of times about, "Oh, Paul, you're so passionate about what you do, and you know, you have such energy." And I'm like, "Yeah, what about the content?" <laughs> but 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 uh, but that does that that passion. Uh, and I've been to your website and seen what you what you're doing, really. When it comes from a heart of passion, it improves your delivery and it helps you find your purpose, doesn't it?
3: Absolutely. And uh, I discovered this because I was working pretty hard, but um, I was running out of steam and I was very, very close to be burned out. And I was working as a business developer in the software industry, in the energy industry. And um, I loved people and I was, you know, selling and meeting people from all different backgrounds, but the content of what I was selling, it was not inspiring me anymore. So at some point I had to really dig deep and especially after one day I crashed in the hotel room crying, <laughs> I felt like this cannot go on. And when I discovered the Passion Test, which is this system from some California New York client centers that uh, help you to discover your passions, I realized this is at the same time what is going to help me come back to my heart and what I can do for a business to help others. As, As a leader, if you don't have passion, how are you going to influence your team? It's virtually impossible to do that only with willpower.
1: So that's kind of the reason why people, but why should people care about finding their passion and what does this have to do with leadership development?
3: The thing is that these days, there is a need for excellence and there is a need for authenticity and transparency. And if you're trying to pretend that you care for your work, but you're not really passionate about it in this hyper-connected society, you can't take it. People are going to realize it at the level of the team, at the level of the customers, at the level of any stakeholder. This is one reason. That in your engagements with all your stakeholders, people actually expect passion from you, expect that you care for what you do. And if you really try to fake it because you love your job, you love the perks of the job and the money and everything else, sooner or later, it's going to be found out and people are going to be disappointed. So that's one reason. The second reason is that it's going to give you more energy. It's going to give you that sustainability in your energy. When you're passionate about it, when you're passionate about something, you want to find out more about it. Even in your own time, you talk about it, you read about it, you connect with other people. And when I saw your your, your videos and your podcasts, I see you as someone who is so passionate about it that you produce another content and really good quality content. So passion, passion leads you to excellence. And excellence is pretty much a requirement these days.
1: So tell me about um the actual process of discovering your five, your your five passions, as you call it. What, what does that mean and what's the process of doing this?
3: Right. It is a process to bring people from their head to their heart. What does that mean? Since we were little, we were given a very kind of rational view of the world. And we were told to analyze everything from a rational point of view and forget about the heart. That is for that is for success. That is not something that you should consider. And what this process does is recover the energy that is stored in your original heart for what since you were little you have certain things that really called you and you may have lost it completely. So when I ask people, "Is in your ideal world, what would you have do, feel, be surrendered for, experience?" And then they come up with 10 passion statements. And then I ask them, when you could have this, but never had that, or you could have B, but never have A, what matters most? That forces people to go into their heart. And if that question is not strong enough, then I ask them to visualize each scenario. So they really necessarily had to come back to their heart. And if I see that they are rationalizing, like, yeah, but um, if I could choose this and I won't have enough money to buy that, say, hold on a minute. Now we are talking about the heart. And 99% of the times, or rather 100% of the time, I find that, that at the end of the process, those five passions really represent what gives more energy to people.
1: So give me an example of what some passions might be. You're telling me this, now let's drill right down into reality day to day. You're talking to me, What what kind of passions are you looking for?
3: Let me give you some examples of uh, leaders that I took through the passion test. Um, I remember one woman in one event in Dubai that was working actually in in an oil industry. What really got to her heart was to to educate the people. She was from Nigeria to educate the people from the rural communities about the dangers. Of the oil pipelines, because people were trying to poach those pipelines and they were exploding and causing deaths. And she had really um, a passion for that, and everybody in their family and even in their own company were telling her that's that's no problem, that, that that's absurd, you shouldn't do that. And then she discovered that that was her first passion; that they should go, that she should go and do that. So there are things that are very close to you, and most likely other people are telling you, no, nah, that's, that's not worth it. But those are the things that are going to give you energy. And when you unlock that energy, even the, the flow in your day, the flow in your week is going to change because those things are going to energize you. And I caught up with her a year later, and she has actually created a school for the rural communities. And she had been promoted in her job because she has so much more energy now. And she has started to also train and mentor in other, in other topics, people from the office, from the main office in, not in the rural, but in the, in the urban environment. So something that could be very little, it actually, it creates a ripple effect in everything that you're doing.
1: So you're basically talking about uh, what I call internal um, congruence or internal alignment. Where you're aligning what you're doing with what's in your heart, your passions, um, what your your core beliefs—is that am I saying that right? To what you're looking for?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, those beliefs may have gotten corrupted over the years. And There are so many should do and must do that people don't realize that. Uh, and I said this may be a little bit metaphysical, but the universe—the universe will give you pretty much. Anything that you ask for, if you are clear, and wouldn't it be a tragedy to get to your eighties and to find out that if you would have made an, a different decision, you would have been able to to develop your career in that direction? It's interesting. Small things uh, yes. I mean, for somebody else that also wanted desperately to travel for work. She wanted to to do everything but traveling. Not not static in just one office. And when she finally delivered the message and put that intention there, a lot of opportunities came up to even do her work in, cru- in cruises and 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 she she started to be on the go. Now she's able
1: to point. travel, yeah.
3: And that was perfectly something like what you do, Paul. Yes. Well, and and that was perfectly visible. She just needed to put the intention there.
1: That's good. A couple thoughts on that. One is um what, you know, I've taught this before and I strongly believe it, that if you do become internally congruent, it will unleash power in your life. Uh, and I think that's what you're saying. And that because you don't want to end up at the end of your life and having spent your whole career climbing the ladder of success only to find out at the end, it was leaning against the wrong wall and you ended up not where you wanted to be. So you're saying, it sounds like to me, uh, Maren, my, that we need to align our careers and what we're doing with our inner passions. And if you can do that, um, or you at least put it out there, what you want to do, you can start moving toward that. And then you'll be more fulfilled, more self-actualized, use Maslow's hierarchy. In, and you'll feel that sense of, I'm right where I belong. This is my destiny.
3: Exactly. But it's not that easy. And I tell you, what's the number one distraction? Okay. The number one distraction is to confuse what you can do with what you love to do because we had studied our degrees and masters, we have certain experience. And then um, there is an ego that comes into place. You know, I I know how to talk about these complicated terms, or I know this uh, sophisticated technology. So then you can do it. But maybe what you love to do is a little bit less sophisticated, more simple. But when you start putting your attention into it, it will expand into a million directions and you will become the expert of that because you will be really going deep in that topic. It it happens to me all the time because I studied chemical engineering and a master's in engineering and an MBA. So I start doing something related with helping people to find their passions. And before I know, I start adding the sustainable development goals and the technical technology of this and that. And, and then I noticed that my energy is less and I'm getting less clients and I'm getting less opportunities. And then it's like, what am I doing? I'm back into what I can do as opposed as to what I love to do. Then maybe it doesn't give me that sense of recognition. But ironically, when I start doing what I love to do, I get many more compliments and recognition, even when I'm not looking for it. So I think that for leaders, when when a leader comes from that space of being connected with their inner core, with what they really love to do, um, inspires people around them, inspires the team members, inspires the, even the customers. I was just an hour ago talking with a customer and they're doing some, Sustainability passions because I'm doing the sustainability passions. And I had been very vulnerable with them and told them that two weeks ago, I have a problem with my blood pressure. And I started going to the gym again and drinking more water. And these guys in this team are much younger than me, like 20, even 25 years younger than me. And one of them told me that I have inspired him to go back to the gym. And that meant a lot to me. And simply by sharing, a passion that I have from well-being, from wellness, and actually I'm very passionate about the gym. I was able to inspire a customer to take a match. So this is some this is some, those are the small things that happen, but uh, that they they really escalate. Because at the end of the day you want to have the team align with you, taking um their that famous extra mile and being passionate and status. You ask members to find their own passion. Yes. Inspired by you.
1: Yeah. There's been a lot of of things recently on LinkedIn uh, uh, business articles about the fact that what people want today is they want to be inspired. Uh, They want a leader that will inspire them. Um, And so that's what you're talking about. You're talking about tapping into your inner core passions as a leader and uh, using them to really activate your own energy. And then that then becomes inspirational to those on your team. This has been very helpful, Merman. I know we could talk for another hour, but this is a good start. We'll, we'll have a link to your website with the information you have there here on the liner notes of the show. Thank you so much. Any final thoughts?
3: Well, I encourage people to really uh, drop all those must-do's and have to-do and spend a little moment with a journal. And then i then answer the question, what will my life be if it was ideal? and you are aligned with everything that matters to me.
4: That's a great homework task. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Transit Unplugged with our guests, Alex Esposito and Marinma Dorado. Now, next week, we have a really special episode for you. Our guest is Renee Amolkar. Not only is she the general manager of OC Transpo in Ottawa, she is the new UITP president. She's the first woman and the first North American to hold the job. This is a really fantastic interview. Here, listen to a little bit of it.
3: We have a huge opportunity with the, the past pandemic to, to, to regain, to reinvent as, as I said, the public transit. We have a huge opportunity and the window is very tight. We have to go now.
4: If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, Feel free to email us anytime at info at Transit Unplugged is presented by Medaxo. At Madaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling the stories of the people who do just that. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.